we remain standing for prayer, I want to want to lead us into a, a moment of prayer together here, but I want you to think for a moment about what we've just been singing. I mentioned themes sort of in jest up here a little bit earlier, um, but if you're paying attention to the songs we're singing, there's a theme as well. Actually, there's a twofold theme, the greatness of God and the love of God, right? Saying how great is the love, how great is our God, how great thou art, greatness and love. But here's the thing. Every time you opened up the news this week, what you read said it ain't true right? Everything you saw this week, everything you heard this week, the major news stories of yesterday, of the days before that, say that if there is a God at all, he certainly must not be great and he certainly must not be good. And how could a loving God permit things like that? We come and we sing it and then we go out into a world that would seem to betray that, those truths, to say it's not so. But God's word says that it is even so. And, and while I can't tell you why those things have happened, I don't have great answers. Nobody here has crystal clear answers that are going to satisfy all our hearts to why such things happen in our world. I do know that God's Word says what we're supposed to do when they happen. found it in Psalm 18 this morning. I want to share it with you as we, as I said, as we go to prayer here. Psalm 118 in my Bible, the heading at the beginning of it says, a psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord's saving goodness. Sounds appropriate. And here's what he says in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Our world is looking for people to solve the problems, right? They're looking to certain people. They think they know the man, the woman, the people, the body, the group that can solve all our problems. And guess what? They're wrong. We're wrong. It's not so. It's better, my Bible says, yours does too, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in anyone else to solve. Now, they can help, and they may be instruments of God, but only God has the answers, and He is still great, and He is still in control, and He is still, as we're going to see in the message this morning, a God of love. But, you know, sometimes we need to reaffirm that in our minds and in our hearts, and so here's what I want to invite you to do as we go to prayer and I'm going to ask you to do as we did last Sunday. Again, not everybody's thing, but let's make it our thing today. Just to, to turn to the people around you, behind you, just in a group of four or five. And, and here's a couple ways I want to invite you to pray. And if you're not comfortable doing it out loud, that's okay. God can hear your silent thoughts. But here's a couple of prayers I'd offer you or, or handles to grab onto. One would be, thank you, Lord, for being a refuge from. The life is hard, but you're the refuge from. Thank you for being a refuge from. Or maybe you want to pray as you think about some of the major news stories, the things going on, what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday, what happened in our nation's capital throughout the week. Maybe it's something else entirely. So, Lord, we pray that whoever those people are, whatever God has burdened your heart with, would take refuge in you. So it's thank you for being a refuge from, or we pray that they, those who are hurting today, would take refuge in you. Can we do that together for, for just a minute or two? Just turn right where you are. If you're on the front row, maybe just gather up with those on your row. Turn to the people behind you. It doesn't need to be a big deal. You don't have to know each other's names. We can all seek the Lord together as you are willing. Jump in with somebody. Lord, thank you that you are a refuge from, or we pray that Whoever it is on your heart would take refuge in you. Let's take the next 60 seconds just to lift that up before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.
So we bring our time of prayer to a close. Let's just, Missy, can you just lead us in that chorus again, just the end of that song? As you make your way back, as you turn around, I'll close us in prayer in a moment, but let's just in a continuing in a vein, a spirit, an attitude of dependence and prayer, let's sing that chorus one more time, how great is our God. Let's sing together. Once more, with just our voices, just our voices to the Lord. Father, further down in that same psalm, Psalm 118, the psalmist cries out, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous, for the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Therefore, I will not die, but live, and I will tell of the works of of the Lord. Father, may that be not just the cry of our heart in a gathering of, of a worship service on Sunday morning, may that be the anthem of our lives. That, that because of Jesus Christ, because of who he is, because even though this world is so broken, he has stepped in and, and Lord, you have rescued us and saved us from the penalty and power of sin. That, that we really live with the understanding that we have a story to tell, that we're not going to die, that we are going to live, and we are going to live to the glory of the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are a strong tower. Thank you that you are a saving refuge. Father, thank you that that even though for some of us here this morning the need for refuge in you is far more personal than a news story on the evening news, it's where we are in life right now that you're just as much a refuge for us and a safe place and a tender, protective father as, as you are for people whose names we don't know and faces we can't see but who need you as well. Thank you that you are so faithful. And Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, 
I pray that you would continue to speak and to minister to our hearts, Lord, in our midst among us, making and shaping us into the people you want us to be. Father, you've given us your word, not so that we look at it once a week, but so that it would be bread and life and, and living water to us as it teaches and reminds us of the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in these, these precious moments you give us together in your word, that it would do exactly that, that your word, under the power of your spirit in the gathering of your people, would do extraordinary things. Father, no preacher can handle that task, but the Spirit of God is more than able. And so we invite him right now, the one who lives within us and, and, and is here in a special way when we gather in your name, that he would guide us in truth, that he would guard us from error, that he would deliver us from distraction, and that he, the Holy Spirit, would truly help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the, in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we walk out the doors, in a little while, may it be with hearts that have been renewed and refreshed because they took refuge in you, Jesus, the name above all names, who is worthy of all praise, and it is in his name that we pray, as all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're sitting down, boys and girls, you can make your way out for Children's Church. Children's Church, if you're visiting with us today, is for the five-year-olds up to the second graders. Great time for them to study God's Word want the rest of us to get into God's Word right away if you grab your Bible and take it out. And meet me once again in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. This morning, we, as we continue trekking with Jesus, we've been following Him all the way through the Gospel so far. Once again, we are in Holy Week. We are perhaps at the midpoint. It's not entirely clear, but Tuesday, perhaps Wednesday of Holy Week as, as Jesus continues with His face set toward the cross to, to prepare the way for what's about to happen. And so Mark chapter 12 is, is where we're going to read in God's Word this morning. And I'll read that passage with you, for you, in, in just a moment but as you're making your way there, let me begin by saying this morning, before we actually read the text itself, you know, one of the very best parts of preaching, of doing what I do most every Sunday, is what I see happen among you when, at some point in a sermon, I pause to tell a story. It's like magic. You wouldn't know this because you're out there, but I'm up here and can see all your faces. And when I come to the point at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of the sermon, and I say something along the lines of, well, that reminds me of the time when, or that reminds me of a story story about. Like I said, it's like magic all across the room. I see people's faces. They perk up. They look up. They wake up, as the case may be, <laughs> because everybody loves a story. Everybody loves a story. And, and I have discovered, and I'm sure you know this intuitively as well, that oftentimes a story, a true story, a made-up, a once-upon-a-time story, whatever it is, but a story is often a far more effective way to make an idea stick than is the propositional truth that is expressed in sermon point number three. You might remember the point, but you'll never forget, most often, the story. And I bring it up this morning because nobody knew that better than Jesus. In fact, I would say that in all of human history, no one was better at it than Jesus than using a story to make a point. In fact, at another point in Mark's gospel, and Matthew says it as well, we are told in no uncertain terms, it says that Jesus never preached a sermon without telling a story. He never gave a message without delivering it in the context or using at some point in it a parable. Jesus always used stories when he was teaching and preaching to people. 
And again, the reason I bring it up is because here at the midpoint of Holy Week, Jesus does it once again. Because if you remember where we left off last Sunday, and I told you that last Sunday, that that this is really last week and this week are two parts of the same scene, but it was too much ground to cover at once, so I split it in half. But if you remember where we were last Sunday, uh, at the end of chapter 11, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders had come once again to Jesus to confront him. It was a a band of representatives from what was called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. There were Pharisees and scribes and and, and priests and, and, and Israel's elders. A representation of them had come to Jesus, and they had come to Jesus with one purpose, the same purpose as ever, only far more intense. They had come to Jesus with the express purpose of taking him out figuring out, once again, what can we do to get rid of this guy? And and they thought this time they really had him. But what did Jesus do? Well, once again, and you think they would have figured this out by now, but once again, Jesus did what he always does. He turned the tables completely around, and he rendered them literally, momentarily speechless. In the span, if you look at the end of chapter 11, uh, just a couple of simple sentences. They have no reply. And so it was into that momentarily silent void that Jesus, as I said, did what he always did. He told a story, and a devastating story at that, as you're about to see. The story begins in Mark 12, verse 1. goes down through verse 12. At least the account of the story goes through verse 12. That's our text this morning. So follow along in your Bible, because this is what the Word of God says. It says, and he, Jesus, began to speak to them. This is primarily the Jewish religious leaders, but of course others were present as well. He began to speak to them, we would say once again, in parables. Here's the story. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it. And he dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he, the owner, sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers, and they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, the landowner, sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. And he had one more to send, a beloved son, And he, again the owner, sent him, the beloved son, last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. And he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? This is also Psalm 118, by the way. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. 
Now, as quickly as I I can, let me just see if I can break down in summary fashion what is going on or what what the various parts of this parable represent. Now, in the moment, everybody listening to Jesus on that occasion knew exactly what he was talking about, who he was talking to. It says it right there at the end of verse 12 and what each thing meant. But just so that we are sure and we are clear, we understand what each major part of this parable represents, let me quickly tell you what they are. First of all, you need to know that when Jesus in verse 1 mentioned a vineyard. He talks about a vineyard. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about the people of Israel. Because you see, at their very inception in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3, God interrupts Abraham's life, calls him, and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. God said from the very beginning, I'm making you this great nation for a purpose, that you might glorify me among all the people and nations of the earth. He said, I'm doing this, that every family on earth might be blessed through you, through what I am beginning here through you. So the vineyard is Israel. It's supposed to be fruitful. It's supposed to be a blessing to everybody. Now, the man, verse 1, the owner, the landowner is, of course, God. God's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who started it all. Then in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, we're told about slaves. Your Bible may call them servants. It's either way is fine. But the slaves or the servants in the, or the, servants in the middle part of the story represent the prophets. The prophets that God sent Israel repeatedly throughout Old Testament history, reminding them to follow the Lord, uh, condemning them for failing to follow the Lord, exhorting them to get back in line with obedience to the Lord. It's the prophets, these slaves, God sends them one after another. Get down to verses 6 and 7. That central character, the, the son, the heir, the, the landowner's only son, who's that represent? It represents Jesus, right? Jesus is talking about himself as, as the one he says, surely they will respect. And then going all the way back up through to, to verse 1, but then they, they, they're, they're really the heart of the story woven all the way through it are these vine growers, these hired hands, these, these laborers that the owner hired. Those vine growers, uh, the ones who perpetrated the violence against the slaves and against the son and whose fate is so graphically described in verse 9, well, that represents the very people Jesus is talking to. That's the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the priests and the leaders. And again, in verse 12, it says, they knew that he meant them. And for that reason, what the scholars, those who study these and do these sort of things have done is they have labeled this particular parable of Jesus a judgment parable. You probably picked up on that as we worked our way through it. There are different kinds of parables told for different reasons. This one, the theme, the emphasis of it is in fact judgment. Jesus is saying, this is what's coming your way for what you have been doing. And therefore, by definition, it's a heavy parable. It's a scary parable. It's a, a challenging parable parable. And even maybe, uh, now that I think about it, going back to what we prayed a moment ago, it may be a parable that makes some of us go, wait, wait, wait what about the God of love and, 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 and mercy and, kind of, and all that kind of stuff? It's a tough one, for sure. But here's the thing, and here's where we're going with it this morning. As devastating a story as this was, and it is for those who heard it then and, and those of us who look at it today, a closer examination of it shows something else. A closer, more deliberate examination of this parable shows something else, and it is this, that every bit as much as it declares God's judgment, at the same time, in equal, perhaps even greater measure, you have to look for it, but it's there, it is also a parable which amplifies God's love. 
the theme of everything we've read and sung and said and prayed this morning. This is a parable, though one of judgment that amplifies God's love. It's tough love, as the title of the sermon suggests, to be sure, but it is love nonetheless. And what I want to show you in the time we have left are five ways that's so. Five signs of the tough love of God that is in this judgment parable that Jesus gave, as I said, now with the cross perhaps just 72 hours off. His love is all over this story. In five ways, five things it tells us about God's love. We've got to move quickly, so the first one is this. The first thing that this judgment parable reveals about the love of God is that the love of God is a genuine love. Everybody say genuine. It is a genuine love. You know, last Saturday I was grocery shopping at Aldi, and I discovered as I was making my way through the aisles that there at the, on one of the end caps, they were selling spring garden flower bulbs for 99 cents a bag. And man, I'm like both arms. I loaded up my cart with spring flower garden bulbs. And therefore, as a result, if you had driven past my house last Monday morning, you would have seen me on my hands and knees in the front yard planting 145 crocus bulbs and, and other kinds of bulbs in neat little rows, five neat little rows in front of my house, three inches deep, three inches apart, just like the instructions told me to plant them. And I'm telling you, I am so fired up for spring, I can't even contain myself. I mean, I'm fired up for spring for a lot of reasons, because I don't like winter at all. But now I've got something extra to look forward to. And I have high hopes for what those bulbs are going to become when the snow thaws and they begin to emerge from the surface or from beneath the surface of the ground. I have high expectations for what that garden is going to look like in the early spring. And that's the very same idea as what's being expressed in verse 1. The very same thing. Because as soon as Jesus said what he said there, look again at verse 1 in your Bible. He said, a man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, he dug a vat under the wine press, and he built a tower, a watchtower over it. As soon as Jesus uttered those words, everybody, believe me, everybody in attendance that day, their thoughts immediately raced back to Isaiah chapter 5. They may not have called it Isaiah 5, but they thought of Isaiah 5. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, 700 years before this scene went down, God had described his relationship with Israel in the exact same way, as a vineyard, as a vine. He's the vine, or he's the, the owner of the vineyard. He's the planter of the vineyard. And God chose to illustrate his relationship with his people in that way, as he's the careful farmer, and they are to be fruitful people. And here in the middle of Holy Week, what Jesus is doing is he is intentionally revisiting it. And he uses the same vivid language. If you were to go to Isaiah 5, you would find many, many similarities between what was said there and what Jesus said here. But Jesus uses that language because he wants to remind the people of something. And that is to remind them of the genuine nature of the love of God. You should get that as you read verse 1 if you read it carefully. Because it talks about a landowner who didn't just throw a vine out, a seed out, he didn't plant something and walk away. Did you get the very deliberate nature of what it said there? He planted the vineyard. He put a wall around it. Why? Because he wanted to protect it. He, he put a, a, a vat underneath it. Why? Because he expected it to produce something good. He built a, a watchtower above it. Why? So he could keep wild beasts and, and invaders and thieves out of it because he didn't want anything to happen to his vine at all. And, and what all of that is meant to speak of is a love that is deliberate, that is attentive, 
that is hands-on and personal, involved in every possible way, genuine. And, and when in the end of that verse, Jesus said that he then rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey, well, that too was familiar to everybody in those days. That was a common business arrangement. And, and, and the, bottom, the bottom line of which is this, if everybody does their job, everybody wins. If I provide the, line, the, the land, you vine growers take care of the vine, the vine does what it's supposed to do. Listen, come harvest time, everybody's going to rejoice. It's a wonderful plan. It's a genuine plan. And that's what Jesus is reminding us of. He may be doing it through a side door, but he's doing it just the same. The love of God is genuine love. His love for you is a genuine love. That's the first thing. Now the second in verses two through six is this. Second thing that Jesus teaches us by implication about the love of God is not only is the love of God, number one, genuine, the love of God, secondly, in verses two through six, is persistent. Everybody say persistent. The love of God is a persistent love. You know, imagine for a moment, there it is, I just saw it. <laughs> I saw your faces go up just like that. Imagine for a moment that uh, that this Christmas morning, you've got children, say you've got children, still got children in your home, or, or you can think back to the days when you had little children in your home, and if this coming Christmas morning, after your precious sons and daughters open all the gifts that you bought them, that you thoughtfully and, and, and deliberately and, and perhaps even sacrificially purchased for them, after all the gifts have been opened and spread out on the living room floor, one of them goes to the basement, gets a hammer for each of your children, and proceeds to destroy all those presents you just provided to them. Or they light them on fire, or they shove them down the garbage disposal, or whatever it is that they want to do, but they take what you've given them and they deliberately destroy it. Let me ask you a question. How many years in a row would they have to do that before you quit buying them presents? Like, like well, I've seen a lot of ones, right? A lot of ones. Maybe a second chance, but certainly, don't fool me twice, but not a third, right? If that's what happens when you give them a gift. Well, that'll give you a sense of what Jesus is driving at in these next several verses. When he speaks of, in parable, how Israel treated God's Old Testament prophets as pictured in the slaves or the servants of these next several verses. Look at it again, verse 2. At the harvest time, he, the landowner, again the Lord, sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Why? Because it's his because he deserves it, he's entitled to it, he's the one who made the investment, he's just doing his part. But they took him, verse 3, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. So he sent him another slave. They wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. So he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. And in summary form, here's what you need to know, that's a pretty fair representation of in the Old Testament how things went down of the way that God's people treated God's prophets. Because when you begin to assemble the evidence, some of it from within the scriptures, some from what we would consider fairly reliable non-scripture sources, you see that this is, in fact, the story of the prophets. What we're told, or we are led to believe anyway, that, for instance, the prophet Isaiah had this magnificent prophetic ministry, one of the longest, richest books in the whole Old Testament, that at the end of his ministry, you know what the people of Israel did? They stuck him in a hollow log and cut him in two. Jeremiah, we're told, after his ministry, his very hard ministry, very difficult time, was stoned to death for being a messenger and a prophet of the Lord. 
Elijah, maybe you remember a couple of years ago, we studied the life of Elijah. He wasn't martyred or executed for his faith, but he was driven away, fearing for his life into the wilderness, where he surely suffered. He suffered hunger and thirst and want and loneliness because he had been faithful to the word of the Lord. Amos, one of the minor prophets, maybe we don't know him as well, but the evidence suggests that he was tortured personally by the high priest and then put to death. Zechariah was stoned as well, right next to the altar in the heart of the temple. John the Baptist, the last, and Jesus called him the greatest of the prophets. We know what happened to him because it happened in their lifetime. They all knew it. For his faithfulness to the Lord, he lost his head. He was executed for the faith. See, the story of the Old Testament is this. Over and over, God sends his messengers. Over and over, God's people refuse and reject them. And yet over and over, what does God do? God just keeps sending them more. Now, I look at that, and you look at that, and call it ridiculous, right? Why would you keep, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? We look at it and call it ridiculous. You know what God calls it? Persistence. God calls it persistence. Because the reason he kept sending one messenger after another, calling the people to obedience, calling them to repent, warning them of what was going to happen if they didn't change their ways is because he what? Because he loved them. You don't do something like that unless you love somebody. It's, it's, it's a living, repeated illustration of what, what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9, that it really is true that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to a saving knowledge of a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So what do we see in this story? We see that, number one, the love of God is genuine. We see, number two, that the love of God is persistent. It does not give up easily. Third, and actually in the same set of verses, a third thing we see, and it's implicit, and even in just some of what I've said to you already, the love of God, thirdly, this parable shows us, is a merciful kind of love. It is genuine, it is persistent, it is merciful. And frankly, I'm not sure this one needs a a ton of explaining because by definition, mercy means something undeserved. You're You're getting something you don't deserve. You're being protected from something you do deserve. That's what mercy is all about. And if there is anything based on, just on even what I've told you in the last three or four minutes, if there's anything the nation of Israel did not deserve at this point in time, it was another chance. One more chance, one more time, one more messenger, one more opportunity. And yet God, what had he done? He just kept giving chance after chance after chance, even as their violence against his servants intensified. Did you notice that as we went through there, that there is a a growing intensity? That's not an accident. It starts, again, go back to verse 2. He sent a slave. Verse 3, they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, they sent him another slave. Well, this one they wounded in the head and they treated him shamefully. That implies something worse. They sent another and that one, well, that's the one whom they killed. And so again, God keeps sending servants because God is continuing to show them mercy, an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to change, an opportunity to return to him. And it wasn't just for show. It wasn't just some sort of fruitless exercise. It was sincere, genuine from the heart of God. Mark doesn't tell us in his account of the story, but, but in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23, Matthew tells 
the same story here, only he adds a lot of other information that Mark leaves out from the same scene, the same confrontation, the same conversation. And one of the things Matthew tells us in Matthew 23, 37, is that at some point in the midst of this conversation, I don't know if it was before he told the parable or after he told the parable or, or, or what point it was, but I just know this. Matthew tells us that at some point in it, Jesus paused and he cried out these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to wipe you off the face of the earth. No. <laughs> That's what I'd say. That's what you'd say. How often I have longed to gather you into my arms. Like a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wing. But you weren't willing. That's what I wanted. That's what I desired. Because again, what did he, he planted that vineyard and he wanted to bear fruit. He planted these people. He wanted to glorify the Lord. He promised if they did, everything would work out. But they weren't willing. And, and here in the moment, what's the deal? Well, he's at it again. He's reaching out to his rebellious people with mercy, and yet they continue to resist, which compels him then to take the ultimate step in verse 6, right? After sending servant after servant and slave after slave, finally in verse 6, he had one more to send. This one was a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them, saying, Surely they will respect him. And that takes us to the fourth dimension of God's love in this judgment parable. And that is this, that it's not only merciful, God's love is sacrificial. The love of God for his people, for all of us, is a sacrificial kind of love. Looking into your Bible at verse 6, we'll read verses 6, 7, through eight, six, seven and 8. Again, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He, the owner, sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son, but those vine growers, what did they say to one another? This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance. All of this will be ours. So they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, we've just discovered something very interesting about this story. You may not have caught it when I read it, but if we pay attention, it's there. And, and it is this, that in this, at this moment in time, this day on Holy Week, as this gathering is taking place, everybody has one common thing on their mind, and that is killing Jesus. Everybody's thinking about it, killing Jesus. Now, we already knew that about the religious leaders, right? I told you that last week in Mark eleven eighteen. Just go back up uh, to, to right before this scene. It says, the chief priests, scribes, they heard this. Jesus had cleansed the temple, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, and the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. We already know that the leaders want Jesus dead. Now we know what's on his mind, too. Now we know that his death is on his own mind too. Because, not a trick question, who's telling the story here? Who's telling the story? Jesus is telling the story. And, and who's the, the son, the heir in the story? It's Jesus and he knows it. He knows as I'm talking about them and I'm talking about Israel and I'm talking about my father, I've got to come to this point in the story where I'm talking about me. So it's going to be no surprise to him and, and hopefully we know this already, but perhaps we need to remember it as well. That, that based on what it says in verses 7 and 8, it was not going to surprise him when on Friday morning they nailed his hands and feet to a cross. He knew what was coming. He knew what it was going to take. He knew that he was the one who was going to bear the, the full price. He was going to be the whole sacrifice. He was the one who would pay the full cost of human 
sin because he knew that's been my father's plan all along. There's no surprise to Jesus. But the difference is this. That where the religious leaders saw killing Jesus as the solution to their quest to retain power, God had designed the death of Jesus as the solution to my need and your need for salvation. There's a plan here. And the plan is a plan of sacrifice. Why? Because by definition, the love of God is sacrificial love. Greater love has no one than this, than a man, a man named Jesus, lays his life down for his friends. That was the plan all along. It had to happen for you and I to sit here this morning and hear these words, Jesus had to die. So God's love is genuine, number one. God's love is persistent, number two. It is merciful, number three. It is sacrificial, number four. There's one more thing. There's one more thing about God's love, and we need it to complete the whole picture, the whole circle of the parable here this morning, and it's this. Fifth and finally, not only is God's love those other four things, it is also, and in equal measure, a love that is just. The love of God is a just and righteous love. And I'd like to suggest that for maybe for some of us, that's the most challenging of these five signs is all. I mean, we can kind of roll with genuine love and persistent love. I, mean, I like persistent love. I like merciful love. I like sacrificial love. Not sure I like just love. Or at least I, I have to sort of work to wrap my mind around it a little bit more than the others. And maybe you do too. Because when you read a verse like verse 9, when Jesus brings it to the conclusion, uh, he, they're not sure where he's going with it. Jesus knows exactly where he's going with it. And he says this in verse 9. He says, so what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. I'd suggest to you that that verse, that statement of Jesus, does not fit like a comfy autumn sweater and just warm us up and make us feel good inside. That's a devastating statement. Because again, what did it say in verse 12? They knew he's talking about them. And he's been right about everything else he said so far. Uh oh, maybe he's right about this too. Because what verses 9 and then 10 and 11 say is that everyone who unrepentantly opposes God will be judged. And only those who repentantly trust Jesus Christ will be saved. And that when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ, the stone, verse 10, whom the builders rejected, will be seen as the chief corner stone. In other words, God's love is just. God's love is just. And can I tell you something? If that is not something, as verse 11 says this morning, that is marvelous in your eyes, if you're not thrilled at that news, consider the alternative. Because the only other alternative is this, that everyone who is wicked and unjust gets away with it forever. The alternative is that those who choose obedience, kindness, mercy, faithfulness, there's no reward, there's no blessing, there's no benefit to that. There's no credit to it, it makes no difference. And ultimately it means if God's love is not just, then we live in a world where Jesus Christ died merely as a martyr and you and I are still lost in sin, we're just deceived thinking otherwise. That's the alternative if God's love is not just as well. And so in giving this parable, here's what Jesus is doing. He's making clear that while a God of love is what everybody wants, amen, hear it all the time. Even people say, I don't believe in God, but if I did, I would believe that he is a God of love, 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 love. That's all we want is love. 
Me too, you too, but. While a God of love is what everybody wants, justice must be part of the equation or it's not love. Or it's not love. And it's not God. All of which, when you put it together, begs, well, probably several questions, but I have one on my mind this morning, which is this. Why would anyone resist it? If these things are true, yes, it's a judgment parable. Yes, it's a hard message Jesus gave. But if these things are really true, that there is a God in heaven, and his love for you is genuine, and his love for you is persistent, he doesn't give up on you, and his love for you is merciful, that even when you do deserve bad things to happen, he doesn't do it. And his love for you is, is, is sacrificial. And, and it's just, he's promised you that in the end, he's going to make sure everything happens the way it should, according to his perfect standard. Why don't we yield to this love? Why don't we yield to this love in part of our life, in all of our life, even just a little bit? Why is it so hard to yield? And that takes us back to the theme of last Sunday's message. Because again, it's all part of the same scene. The reason they couldn't yield is the same reason that, that I struggle to yield. Control, right? I want control. I want things to work out according to my plan and God to bless it. Not according to his plan and, and I submit to it. Why? Because I think I'm smarter than God. I would never say that. Well, I just did. But I would never say that and mean it. But that's what we think. Lord, here's my plan. Bless it. Because I know best. I love me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. God says otherwise. There is this, even though sin's power and penalty has been broken, it is still there. And it has this merciless grip that urges me and you with all our might, don't say yes to him. But when we begin to grasp the love of God, that if even in a parable of judgment, the love of God, the true, the authentic love of God can be this real, can, can be so clear, when we begin to even just begin to grasp God's love as we've seen it here, why wouldn't we yield to him even just a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit today, a little bit more than yesterday in this area or that area or the whole thing? Why wouldn't we surrender completely to the genuine, persistent, merciful, sacrificial, just, righteous love of God, which, by the way, is also perfect and never ends? How about that? It just gets better. Yes, it is a love. That is tough. But the big idea of the message this morning is this, is that the love of God is an invitation to yield. That's what he was by implication, pleading with them to do here. That is, by implication, what he's pleading with you to do here and me this morning as well, to yield. So as we prepare to go to prayer, I'm just going to invite the worship team back up to, to get ready to lead us in our final closing song. I want to ask you this question, and I want you to think about it, not because I said so, but invite the Spirit of God who dwells within you as a believer to search your heart and say, Lord, where do I need to yield this morning? Just as you bow your head right now, let me just invite you to do that because you don't need to look at me and I'm not going to look at you and it's not about the person next to you, it's about you and the Holy Spirit who lives within you. 
Maybe you don't know this morning. Listen, he delights to answer a prayer like that. Search me and know me, O God. Check my heart. So as we just take a moment before I pray, a couple of moments, just say, Lord, is there anywhere today that you want me to yield? I have called you Savior, but in this I have not yet called you Lord. In response, not to the message of a preacher, not to a service of worship, but to the love of God, which is revealed for us in the pages of Scripture, where would he invite you and ask you to yield to him this morning? Just going to be quiet for a moment and allow you to work that out, him to work that out in you. Lord, where would you have us yield today? Control. Let me just offer that if it's a struggle, as it so often is, it's a spiritual battle, it's not going to be easy. Maybe God's even in, the mo- in this moment just begun to put his, his finger of holy pressure on your heart saying this is the place and you're like, yeah, but, yeah, but. You know, one of the best things we can do when we're struggling to yield or to obey is to rehearse the things that are true about God. And maybe what your prayer for a moment needs to be is, Lord, just thank you that your love for me really is genuine. Thank you, Lord, that your love for me has been so persistent, even against even toward me when I have dug my heels in against you. Just rehearse these truths. You're merciful. You're sacrificial. You have promised to work all things together for your glory. Rehearse the truth and then yield the thing. If you've got nothing to yield this morning, then thank him for bringing you to a place where just the slate is clean and there's peace. Another minute. So just to process that through. Let's go ahead and stand together before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus that, that true to your word oftentimes do, in fact, pierce us like a double-edged sword. There's a, an edge of joy and there's an edge of sometimes sacrifice or pain as we recognize what is out of alignment with you and needs to be brought back in. Thank you that you are pleased to meet us in those places and carry us through them. Thank you that you've promised to, for, to, to, to finish the good work that you have begun in each of our lives. Lord, all of us stand before you this morning as unfinished projects and, and products, but we have been promised there is a finish line and that when we see you, we will be like you and we will shed these bodies with their aches and their pains and and their worries, and their fears, and their disappointments. Even the joys, Father, even the greatest joys of this life will pale in comparison to the face of Jesus. Father, why wouldn't we live for you today? Father, would you, in your persistent, merciful, sacrificial, genuine love, 
Father, would you honor the prayers of your people that have been offered here this morning in silence, saying, Lord, I give this to you, and I'm, I'm frightened to do it, or I'm glad to do it, or I'm glad it's finally over. Whatever it is, Lord, I don't know what you've done here, but you do. And I pray that you will, even in this moment, do a work of assurance to say, yes, child, you did the right thing. And I'm so pleased. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, we stand before you as clean and approved. Thank you that our place in heaven is secure. Thank you for sending your son. As we were reminded at the beginning of our service this morning, that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem sinful, lost people like us. And Father, the the label over our life is no longer lost sinner, but redeemed son, precious daughter, child of the king, loved one. Father, thank you that these things are true. We pray that the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning will be sealed to our hearts, that all the rest will be washed away and forgotten so that we leave looking to and savoring Jesus alone in whose name we pray and whose praises we will now sing together to close our gathering. In the name of Jesus, amen.